Lord, make us receptive to your truth today. God, we do pray for our nation. God, we pray for revival in your church and spiritual awakening in our country. God, we ask for the salvation of our leaders. We pray for uh, just wisdom that you would turn their hearts and to guide them uh, to do what's right and what's pleasing in your sight. And God, I ask that you would uh, raise up your church, raise up this church, God, make us missionaries. Lord, uh, use us in uh, making disciples who make disciples. And God, just work through your church uh, to see people meet Jesus, to see lives changed, and out of that, communities changed, and, and, and the world uh, changed. So, Lord, we ask you to speak to us now and help us to uh, just to see and, and, and know and to act on your truth. God, we uh, love you. We praise you. We thank you for everything you do for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat if you would. Uh, welcome. It's uh, good to see you. We're glad that you're uh, here on this holiday weekend. If you're new, uh, we especially uh, want to welcome you and uh, hope uh, everyone is doing well today. So um, let, me, let me start by asking you a couple of questions. Do you think America, the United States, is or should be a Christian nation? Do you think America is or should be a Christian nation? And if the answer to that, if you say yes, this would be my follow-up question, is what does that look like? Okay, I mean, I mean what is that? I mean, does that mean like we go back to life in the 1950s? Does that mean, you know, we make certain laws or, I mean, you know, there's people that, that, that say, you know, America needs to become a Christian nation again and, and all these kind of things. Uh, uh, you know, we need to restore Christian values in America. America needs to turn back to God. America needs uh, to put God first, uh, these kind of things. And so, this is the, the question or, or the issue that I want to deal with today is this question. Is it the mandate of the church to turn America back into a Christian nation? And, and I think this is an important question because, uh, and, and maybe what I'm going to say is going to surprise you. I mean, I think what I'm going to say today would be different than what you would hear in the average church in East Tennessee. Because I'm going to say that the answer to this question is no. And I'm going to say that to answer the question yes is possibly even heretical. Because anything that can be classified as Christian apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ is extremely problematic. And so, it's going to be a different kind of message. We're kind of we're planning on finishing up the, the True Love series next week. Uh, this is something I very rarely do if you're new to True Love. This is a topical message. Normally, we're in a passage of Scripture, in a book of Scripture, uh, like this fall, starting in the middle of August. The plan is to walk verse by verse through the book of Philippians. So, this is more a, a, of a topical message. But, uh, you know, this is something that I think is really important because I think this issue is hurting the witness of the church. Now, this, for me to say, is it the mandate of the church to turn America back into a Christian nation to say no, may seem counterintuitive at first. It may even seem like, what's he talking about? Why wouldn't we want America to be a Christian nation? Again, though, you're going to have to define for me what a Christian nation actually would be. And, and what I'm going to argue in this message is biblically, it's not even a biblical category. It's not even actually possible. Now, so, so what I want to do is uh, I'm going I'm to give you the main idea here in just a minute. And, but then in developing that, I'm going to tell you some things that I'm not saying. And, and I want you to listen to those because if you're going to disagree with me, that's fine. But if you're going to disagree with me, at least disagree with what I'm actually saying and not what I'm not saying. And then I'm going to try to show you biblically why I think America can't be a Christian nation. But I'm going to show you a better way forward, I think, biblically for the church. Now, I'm saying America is not a Christian nation. Some people say it, it, it should be. 
Probably we would advocate for a lot of the same things, though. I think abortion should be illegal. Marriage should be between uh, a man and a woman. Uh, you know, gender, like we talked about last week, is an actual biological reality, so on and so forth. Uh, I think we would just kind of propose different ways to get to those things. So uh, let me just say this. Maybe this will help clarify. When you study Christian worldview, and worldview is just kind of your philosophy of life. Everybody has a worldview, whether you realize it or not. It's just kind of, uh, you know, what's your authority? How do you, why do you do the things you do? How do you view the world? How, how do you approach life? Uh, in, in a Christian worldview, uh, Christian worldview teaches that God has ordained three spheres in the world. There's family, which is original before sin. But then because of sin, there's human government with the primary purpose of restraining evil. And then there's the church. Apart from sin, there'd be no need for the government. There'd be no need for the church. But those spheres are all ordained by God. But, and there's maybe some overlap, or maybe overlap's not the right word. Maybe interconnection is a better word. But they're distinct. And you have to keep them distinct or you end up having problems. So let me give a very simple example. Um, So I believe, according to Scripture, that Islam would be a false, unbiblical, ungodly religion because it has a different view of God, it has a different Scripture, it has a different way of salvation than, than Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But at the same time, uh, I believe in religious liberty. And, and there's, there was a controversy over this within the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago because uh, some of our entities had advocated that, uh, you know, there, there was a, like a, a case, I think it was in New Jersey, where a community tried to build, uh, tried to prevent an Islamic congregation, if that's what you would call it, from building a mosque. And so, I believe, as a citizen of the United States, in, believe, in believing in religious liberty, I would advocate for them being able to build a mosque. Because if you're truly going to have religious liberty, it has to be religious liberty for all. But as a Christian, I would vehemently say that Islam is a false, blasphemous religion and that they need Jesus Christ. But you see, I want the, the freedom and the liberty as a citizen of the United States to be able to say that. For them to advocate, well, this is what we believe, this is who we believe Jesus is. And, and, and for me to say, well, no, this is who I believe Jesus is. And us to freely discuss that with liberty as citizens of the United States in that sphere of government, but in the spiritual, uh, spiritual church sphere, for us to be, you know, proclaim what we believe. Does that make sense? And when you start putting those things together, then you have problems. You're saying there's actually a Baptist that Thomas Jefferson and uh, James Madison got the whole idea of church and state from, the separation of church and state. And, and, and so, just got to keep those things separate, okay? But this is the main idea today. This is what I'm going to advocate for. It's, it's this. That the church is not called to make America a Christian nation, but the church is called to make America a nation of Christians. The church is not called to make America a Christian nation. The church is called to make America, and really the world, a nation of Christians. It's two different things. It's two different approaches. The first is moralism. A Christian nation with Christian values and Christian laws, external things. The second, heart change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, if if you're a Christian, your ultimate allegiance is not to the United States of America, it's to the kingdom of God. And this is, I think, an issue. So, let me be clear though, these are some things that I'm not advocating, okay? I'm not advocating that America does not have a Judeo-Christian heritage. When people try to say that it doesn't, they're simply rewriting history. Now, 
That doesn't mean, though, that we have a perfect history. See, here I think is a problem. You know, when, when I was growing up in school, and I have a degree in history, but like when I was in school and we were taught history, everything about America pretty much was perfect. Now, when kids are taught history, everything about America is pretty much imperfect. And neither one is true. And an honest reading of history should really probably include what's right and what's wrong. Okay, but part of our heritage and history is uh, many of the founding fathers. Of course, you go all the way back to the pilgrims, everything before that, were were Christians. And even the ones who weren't, who were deists, um, you know, most of them would have said, you have to have a religious, biblical foundation to build a nation on. You know, you read the Constitution, you read the Declaration of Independence, you see natural law, you see biblical ideas in those things. that's, That's a fact. But it's not the same as being a Christian nation. Second, I'm not advocating that government is unimportant or unbiblical. In fact, I would say the opposite. Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So government is it's one of those spheres. It's, it's something appointed by God. It's clearly very important. I'm not uh, advocating being anti-patriotic, okay? I think if, uh, you know, if you don't like America, there's lots of other nations to live in, okay? So, I mean, I still got some East Tennessee hillbilly in me, but, you know, <laughs> even despite what I'm going to say today. Uh, I mean, I just think that's the tr- I think, you know, America's been greatly br- blessed We're blessed to have the freedoms uh, that we have. Uh, I think we ought to love our country, but I think the problem comes in. I read the results of a survey recently among Protestant pastors. 53% of them said they believe that their congregation loves America more than it loves God. And, And that's a concern, I think. I heard Rick Warren say in an interview recently, J.D. Greer said this in his presidential address at the Southern Baptist Convention, and I think that they're both right. He said that he thinks one of the things that's happened uh, in the last couple of years, uh, you know, maybe partially due to COVID, but more than that, is that now many Christians, instead of uh, them finding their identity in Christ, they find their identity in politics. So, uh, again... I'm all for being patriotic, but there's a difference in being patriotic. There's a difference in patriotism and nationalism and Christian nationalism. And uh, there's a difference in being patriotic and making your nation an idol. That's what I'm talking about. Four, I'm not advocating that Christians should not speak in the public square or be involved in politics. I would actually say the opposite. And, And this is important to understand what I'm saying today. I'm talking about, in, in, in saying it's not the church, I'm talking about the church corporately. It's not our mandate to try to turn America into a Christian nation. I believe there's lots of individual Christians that ought to be involved in politics in the public square and in making a difference. So, in fact, and uh, I'll say something about this later, maybe I'll explain it, because if you've not heard me teach on this before, it's, it's like shorthand for something. I believe as Christians that we ought to try, and we ought to try to equip our kids to get as far upstream as possible. And, and here's what I mean. Culture flows downstream. So, Jefferson City, pretty far downstream, <laughs> Right? I mean, it's, it's a great place to live, but we're not exactly a cultural hotbed, right? We're not exactly shaping the trends of the world from, from, from Jefferson City. And, and, and kind of like a stream, you know, what's downstream is the junk, the trash that's made it that far. So the problem in, in living sometimes in a, in a smaller community, or we even see this when we go to Honduras, is instead of setting trends, people, it, it tends to lag behind cities, but it tends to mimic the worst parts of those trends. And that's why, in part, there's more to it than this, but when you read statistics about East Tennessee, you know, supposedly in the Bible Belt, if that even exists uh, anymore, but when you look at statistics about uh, you know, teenage pregnancies, out-of-wedlock births, uh, you know, drug abuse. It's horrible. 
And so what I'm saying is we need to be equipped to get upstream, to get people in places where, uh, you know, culture is actually shaped in order to make a difference. That's one of my goals as, as parents. You know, one of the goals of our youth ministry is to prepare our kids where when they're out of high school and going to college or going into the workforce or whatever, they're ready to function as Christians in that environment and not just leave uh, their faith uh, behind. So uh, I think that's important. But I believe our goal in, in getting as far upstream as possible, including in politics, is the advancement of the kingdom of God instead of the restoring of a Christian nation. We need Christians in the public square to be prophets and servants, not politicians. And, and I think that uh, really the partisan politics within the church where people turn a party or a candidate into a functional savior is highly concerning. I think the lack of love Anger among Christians. It's almost like when it's election season, the commands in the Bible about love and about speaking to one another, even loving our enemies, somehow don't seem to apply anymore. I mean, can I just tell you that you are not going to change the world. You're not going to change the future of the United States. You're not going to change uh, the outcome of an election by your angry post on Facebook. It's just not going to happen. You know, neither party is perfect. And I think if you advocate for one party, you probably ought to speak to the imperfections of that party, maybe more so than the other party. You know, if something's a biblical issue, we ought to speak to it, speak the truth in love. But um, you say, why don't I talk about politics when I preach? It's very simple. I don't ever want to say anything that's going to turn someone, Republican or Democrat, off from hearing the gospel from me. Something outside of Scripture. Now, again, if somebody, you know, if I say uh, abortion's wrong or something like that, that's a biblical issue. Somebody has a problem with that, they have a problem with that. But who are you going to reach by making fun of Joe Biden's cognitive difficulties? I mean, who are you going to reach politically? But, I mean, who are you going to reach for Christ by doing that? All right, I better move on. <laughs> I'm not advocating that Christians should not vote and not vote their Christian conscience. I mean, how you vote, like everything else in your life, if you're a Christian should be quorum Deo in the face of God under the authority of Scripture. But the Bible does not spell out the application of every issue. And if someone doesn't look at something exactly like you do, that doesn't mean they're like the devil incarnate. Vote your conscience, but you don't have to judge the rest of the world for that. In fact, you know, Tim Keller points something out that I, that I think is, is, is very wise. He says when you look at Scripture, you know, when it comes to voting and politics and that kind of thing, there's some basic non-negotiable kind of issues. The sanctity of life. A biblical definition of marriage. Biblical view of sexuality. Serving the poor and the disenfranchised. Problem is, I don't know that there's one party that emphasizes all four of those things. And, and so, you know, you get into some issues that, I mean, I think some of these, if you believe the Bible, you know, marriage be, be, between, being between a man and a woman, abortion uh, being murder, so on, some of these are really clear cut, but other things, like you get into immigration, how you take care of poor, who actually even gets defined that way, I don't know that that's really real black and white. I mean, you know, we, we believe, I've had conversations with people in Honduras about this, our pastors there teach them that illegal immigration is wrong. But what do you do when someone has brought their kid here and the kid's grown, grown up here? Is that real black and white? It seems a little fuzzy to me. And so we need to think about these things. 
Okay, I'm not advocating for either political party. Now, I have leanings and opinions, but I don't think either one is actually the ultimate answer. There's a text in the Old Testament that I love. It's Joshua uh, chapter 5, and uh, you know Joshua chapter 6 is Jericho. But in Joshua chapter 5, Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, Jesus shows up. It says, It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went uh, to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face, fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does the Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And so, basically, I think what Joshua is asking is like, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And Jesus said, I didn't come to take sides, I came to take over. And that's what we need to understand. If if Jesus is our king and we're a part of his kingdom, he's in charge, he's ruling, and he's reigning, and we need to follow him. And that may mean at some points aligning with one person or one part, but he's our Lord. He didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. Seven, I'm not saying that we don't have rights as citizens of the United States and that we shouldn't appeal to those rights. You see Paul doing that multiple times in the book of Acts as a Roman citizen. So, Laws are important, courts are important, justice is important, so I'm not saying that. I'm not advocating compromising scripture, and I'm not saying that there's not a need for great change in the United States. It's just a question of how it's going to happen. I think it's the church, we need to focus on gospel change. So again, the idea here, the, the, the case that I'm making is that it's not the calling, it's not the mandate of the church to try to turn America into a Christian nation, but try to make America a nation of Christians. Now, why do I believe this biblically? Well, uh, let me give you some reasons, and we'll run through these fairly quickly. Number one, the whole idea of the nation being a Christian nation is just simply contradicted by Scripture because Scripture refers to the church and not a country. In this way. 1 Peter 2 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, usually when people say America is a Christian nation, basically they're saying, that God entered into some kind of covenant to make America like his special people. And God has undoubtedly blessed our nation greatly, but that's the, that we, God made a special covenant with us is not in the Bible. It's just not. I mean, I would say that God has blessed us because when you function according to the way he's designed the world, the natural law, truth, things go well. That's just the way he set up the universe. And when you don't, things don't go well, which should be a little concerning to us right now. Number two, Israel is the nation that's God's people. Now, uh, this is interesting. I just kind of stumbled across this recently, and I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to give her publicity. But there's a uh, congressional candidate in a particular state who recently tweeted that God, and I'm paraphrasing, God made two people for his, two nations for his glory Israel and the United States. But this is what uh, the Bible says. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in, um, this is King David speaking in response to the covenant that, that God made with him. Who is like you, your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people to make for himself a name? Now, that seems pretty clear to me. Number three. The idea of a Christian nation is based on Old Covenant thinking 
instead of new covenant thinking. Let me explain a couple ways where this gets uh, applied, I think. First of all, and this is important, this is, I think, very practical because it has to do with how we interpret Scripture. When you read the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament, do you apply them to the church or do you apply them to us as a nation? Now, again, I'm not saying Israel and the church are the same thing. That's something called replacement theology, which is actually unbiblical. The the church and Israel are distinct in the plan of God. I'm talking about by way of application. The Bible says all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. Um, But the promises of God to the people of God in the Old Testament, I think need to be applied to the people of God today, which is the church, not a nation. Here's maybe the prime example of that. Uh, You hear this around this time of year. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. If my people, people apply that to the United States. But if the United States isn't my people, if the church is my people... That's where it applies. Now, again, if there's revival in the church, it's going to affect the nation in a positive way. But this is not a promise that we can take today and just unilaterally, unequivocally apply to the United States of America. And there's so many things like that in the Old Testament. The other way that this is Old Covenant thinking and that it's problematic is because it... it, it, emphasizes the conditional promises of the Old Covenant instead of the unconditional promises of the New Covenant, which are found in Jesus Christ. Today, if you're a Christian and you're looking for anything from God outside of Christ, that's a problem. And so the idea is in the Old Covenant, you were promised if you obeyed, you were blessed. But what's the flip side of that? If you disobeyed, you were cursed. So basically, it's this kind of thinking is saying, if we're good enough, God's going to bless us as a nation, which what the gospel says is, we're not good enough, we're bad, so Jesus became a curse for us, and then when we trust him, the curse is removed, and we have the blessings of God come upon us in Jesus Christ. And so why do we want to go back to the old covenant? Because all we're doing is inviting a curse, inviting judgment on ourselves. This is given to individuals. It's not given to a nation. It confuses people. Listen, if the church's message is, okay, you need to stop doing this, you need to start doing that, we need to this law, we need to change, that's moralism. How are we ever going to, then when we proclaim the gospel and say, you're sinful, you can't ever be good enough, your only hope is Jesus Christ, that's two opposite messages. That's why this matters. Number four, God raises up and brings down leaders. Ones that we like, ones that we don't like. Ones that we agree with, ones that we disagree with. Ones that are righteous, ones that are unrighteous. God has plans that we don't understand. God is doing things that we don't understand. It's all a part of his eternal sovereign plan that he is working out. But I mean, when you look at Scripture... Uh, Daniel 2.37 of Nebuchadnezzar says, You, O king, are a king of kings, for, God, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Was Nebuchadnezzar a Christian? Was he godly at this point in time? Absolutely not. Pharaoh, Romans 9.17, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. John 19, 11, <clears throat> Jesus answered, speaking to Pilate, You have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. God may be giving us wicked rulers 
to provoke the church to prayer and to seeking God and to having the right priorities and to putting Him first. We don't know what God's purposes are. Number five, the Bible teaches us that every Christian is a missionary. So the church's mission is telling as many people as possible about Jesus and making disciples of all the nations. That's our mission. As the church corporate, as individual believers, we're commissioned to be missionaries. Acts 1-8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, Jesus said the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20, you know, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said in John chapter 17, as the Father sent me, I also have sent you. Listen, I think the church in the United States has to decide, are we going to be gospel-centered missionaries or are we going to be a political voting block? Number six, Christianity is about heart change from the inside out through the gospel while religious moralism focuses on the outside in. Question is, do we believe that people can really truly have heart change apart from the gospel? And, you know, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Um, 2 Corinthians 3 teaches us that the law condemns instead of giving life, and that it ends by saying, Now where the Lord is, now, where the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we all with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What he's saying is, transformation comes when we look to Jesus Christ. So, Do we believe we're going to change the nation ultimately by changing laws, by telling people how awful they are, by telling them they need to vote differently? I'm not saying there's not something of a place for that, but I'm saying, is that our focus or is our focus on lifting up Jesus Christ, letting him change people from the inside out? And, and, And what I believe is, if somebody's not a Christian, you can yell at them all day long about how wrong they are politically. All it's going to do is it's going to harden their heart. But if someone comes to Christ and and God changes their life and they're discipled and they begin to know the Word of God, they're going to learn how they need to vote. They're going to learn how they need to think. Um, But our job is to proclaim uh, the the gospel. Um, You know, I, I think a lot of people right now are turning off the witness of the church because... They see the church as just being political. Number seven, we can't expect non-Christians to think and act like Christians. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 uh, is a chapter about church discipline. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside... Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. In other words, what he's saying is, deal with sin in the church, not outside the church. Now, so it's easy, though, for pastors to talk about politicians and celebrities and people like that because they're not paying their salary. I mean, you get a lot of amens, oh, the world's so bad, Uh, look at what Washington's doing, look at what's coming out of Hollywood, but God says, deal with sin in the lives of the people in the church. That's what's biblical. And I think to go along with that, number eight, we have to get our own house in order. The Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. Jesus said, you know, get the log out of our eye before we try to get the splinter out of somebody else's eye. Scripture tells us to be holy 
even as the Lord is holy. And, you know, we're all imperfect. But, you know, do we live in such a way that when people look at us, it turns them off from the gospel? Or people, do we live in such a way, and, and, and some of that includes saying, you know, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, my only hope is Jesus Christ. Do we live in such a way that people think, and there might be something to this Christianity thing? Number nine. We have to remember that the message of Christianity is the message of the cross. And that message is never going to make us popular and influential in the world. Because only a regenerated heart can receive that message. I mean, I mean, what's going to make you popular? I, I mean, I have no illusions that by standing up here and preaching that trust this crucified guy is going to make me popular with a whole lot of people. If we stand up and proclaim what Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, that's not going to make us popular. It was never designed to. Listen, the thing we have to be careful of is that we're not calling people to some watered-down false version of Christianity. People need something worth giving their lives to. People will commit their lives to causes. Why? I mean, they'll, they'll give themselves away for the sake of their cause. Why would we as Christians not give ourselves away for the sake of Jesus Christ? But, I mean, even Scripture says at 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness. It's moronic, literally, to those who, who are perishing. So, if you're, you know, looking to be a Christian to make you popular, you probably ought to look in a different direction. But at the end of the day, we all have to decide if we want to be pleasing to God or popular with people. And the last reason is that we are ultimately citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, and we're, remember these different spheres, we are citizens of the United States. Biblically, we're called to be good citizens. You're to submit to the authority of the government. But he says, ultimately, our citizenship is in heaven. We're part of God's kingdom, which includes people from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And again, that's where our ultimate allegiance is. Chuck Colson used to say, the kingdom of God is not going to come riding in on Air Force One. The kingdom of God is going to come riding in on a white horse, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, to rule and reign and conquer over all who oppose Him. We're ultimately citizens of God's kingdom. And so, I think when you put all of these things together, it would be clear that the calling, the mandate of the church, is not to try to make America a Christian nation, which is not even a thing biblically, to try to make America a nation of Christians. Now, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, let me just, in the few minutes, last few minutes we have, let me just kind of give some applications, some suggestions maybe about that. Number one, we're to be a city within a city that's here for the good of our communities. In Jeremiah chapter 29, they were in the Babylonian captivity. And when you want to apply Scripture to us today, and I'm you know, speaking metaphorically here, we're not in Jerusalem, we're in Babylon. So how do you live as a believer when you're in Babylon? Well, here's what God said to them back in the day. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give daughters to your husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace uh, of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Listen, in our communities, churches ought to be the greatest force and agent for good that there is. He talks about building families. He talks about praying. He talks about you know, doing good uh, you know, in, in the peace of the city. Is your peace? Are, are we making a, a difference? If you moved, would anybody miss you? If we disappeared as a church, would anybody miss us? We're called to make a difference. How are we serving? Who are we serving? Who are we, be a, who are we being a blessing to? In our community, how can we do that? Well, part of the reason why I'm excited about us starting Celebrate Recovery back. Um, you know, thankful for the ways there are small groups that serve. I'm thankful for the way that many of you, you know, use your life and your vocation and your opportunities to make a difference in, in, in people's lives. That's what we're called to do. Number two, equip Christians, especially young people, to get as far upstream as possible to make a difference for the kingdom of God in every sphere of life, including politics and government, for the good of all people. Biblical examples of this would be people like Joseph, Nehemiah, Daniel. I mean, think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Taken captive, put in the king's court, you know, trained in you know, this, their pagan philosophy and religion. But they stood firm. If our country's going to change, it's probably the next generation that's going to do it. How are we equipping them for that? That's part of our job, that's part of our calling. Number three. Abandon our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, Acts 20, 24, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, at some point we're going to have to decide, is my life my own or do I belong to Jesus and how am I going to live based on that? And in the day in which we live, and listen, this is one of the good things about the day in which we live. Let's be real. If you have kids and or grandkids, um, well, you probably have to have kids to have grandkids. If you have kids, <laughs> and then, they, you know, they have kids, whatever. Um, <laughs> you're probably concerned about the future, right? Honestly, some of you aren't just concerned about the future, some of you are just sitting around wringing your hands about the state of our nation. How do I know? Because I read your social media stuff. <clears throat> and there's obviously things to be concerned about. But can I tell you, there's some things to be thankful for. And you know what one of the things to be thankful for is? Civil religion is dying. We're coming to a place where you're going to have to get off the fence. And this is what Christianity is always designed uh, to be, that you're either in or you're out. And the people who are in, who have uh, radically abandoned their lives to Jesus Christ, are the people that he's used to change the world. And that would be part of our calling, is to get in or out. I think that's part of what he's saying to us. You know, don't put, pretend, don't play the church games. Either follow me or stop talking about it. Number four, I believe he's calling us to pray fervently and in faith for God to transform lives, families, communities, and ultimately our nation. Acts 4.31 says, and this was the early church facing persecution, they gathered together and it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Listen, you read the book of Acts. They had a lot of problems. They experienced persecution. Their response was prayer. And 
uh, I think, that, again, this is a good thing that's happening. I, I think you see bits and pieces of this happening in churches and communities across our nation. And God's going to work through that. Something we're going to do this fall, starting in August, in our small groups, we're going to do a church-wide small group study about prayer, or, or about revival and spiritual awakening, including prayer. And we're going to establish some just set-aside special times of corporate prayer, just specifically for missions, for revival, and for spiritual awakening. And um, I believe that enough churches do that. We're going to see a mighty work of God in our nation. Number five, Christians must individually and corporately repent of sin uh, and consistently live lives that are marked by repentance. Again, we're all sinful. We're all broken. We all fall short. We all sin every day. But if the world is going to pay any attention to us, they need to see us as people who are repenting of sin, who are seeking God, who are being changed daily by the gospel. Not that we're perfect, but that we're growing, that we're real, that we're, that we're not fake. Number six, churches must lovingly and consistently practice biblical church discipline with the purpose of restoring wayward believers and protecting uh, the church. Again, if the church just looks just like the world, why should anybody be attracted to it? Number seven, we're going to make a difference, follow the example of Jesus by serving each other and serving the world. Jesus said, you know that the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the reality is when you uh, study history that the church has always been effective on the margins and on the fringes as servants. When the church, and this is paraphrasing something J.D. Greer said, has gotten in bed with politics, it's gotten pregnant, and what it's gotten pregnant with looks like the devil. I mean, just study history. Number eight, we have to do everything we can to reach, disciple, and equip men to fulfill their God-given roles. This is how we're going to make the greatest impact in our nation because you just do the research. Fatherlessness is the root problem in our nation. And so, uh, ladies, don't take this the wrong way. This is not to demean or diminish you in, in any way. And most of you would agree with what I'm saying anyway. But God in the home and in the church has given men uh, the role of leadership. And when men live up to that, things flourish. When they don't, things fall apart. So we are unapologetically going to continue to make this a priority of our ministry. Number nine. The universal church must unite around the essentials of the gospel and stop fighting and dividing over secondary matters, including politics. Listen, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We're not the enemy. The enemy is not the body of Christ. Somebody doesn't have to agree with you on everything to be your brother or sister in Christ. Now, there are obviously... Primary doctrines that if somebody denies them, they're not a Christian. But there's a lot of secondary and tertiary issues that we can view differently and still work together. And, and again, I, I think this is, this is one of the good things about persecution. When, it, when the church is being persecuted, you can't afford to fight over little things. Maybe it's like uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin said uh, you know, in the prelude to the American Revolution as they were beginning to oppose England. He said, if we don't hang together, we're all going to hang separately. And I think that applies to the church today. And then last, let's stay focused on lifting up Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, and living as missionaries. The gospel is still the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes. Do we believe that? I mean, the early church, it said they turned the world upside down. They had no political power. They didn't have a good government. I mean, you ever heard of Nero? 
I mean, can you imagine what people would be saying on social media today about Nero? Except you probably couldn't even say it because he'd cut your head off. Listen, the gospel is not dependent upon earthly or worldly power. Do we really believe it's the greatest power that exists in the universe? If so, who's your one? Who's God called you to reach? See, you know, this is where I'm excited. Because when things are the darkest, the light shines the brightest. And, you know, I'm excited because God has blessed us so much as a church through COVID. And we've made progress. But that progress has now positioned us to really move forward and to really make a difference in our community, in the world. And now are we going to step up to that? Are we going to share the gospel? Are we going to disciple? Are we going to serve? Are we going to think outside of ourselves? Are we going to pray? Are we going to do what it takes to make more and more and more of a difference? Because that is what God has called his church to do. Not sit around and whine about everything that's wrong, but in his power, through the Holy Spirit, by the word of God, to make a difference. Because if we don't, who will? Who can if the gospel is what's the power of God unto salvation? Let me close with this. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and... um, Ed Stetzer was being uh, interviewed. He's a, he's a missiologist. <laughs> and he's talking about the last couple of years, and he, he called it uh, a convulsion in society. But, it, but he said when you study things uh, about every 60 years, um, this happens in the Western world. If you think about it, you go back to the 1960s. Now, I was, I was born in 1970, but you go back to the 1960s. You think things have been bad in the last year? They were worse then. But you know what happened in 1968? Something we call the Jesus Movement. You know, the, the music that we sing, what we call modern worship now, had its roots in that. But if we, the last time, if you could call it a spiritual awakening, which I think you could, probably the last spiritual awakening in the United States was the Jesus movement. And it came out of all of that upheaval and uproar. And it just basically started, I mean, God started saving a bunch of hippies out on the West Coast. There's a guy named Lonnie Frisbee that knew somebody who knew Chuck Smith, if you're familiar with Calvary uh, Chapels and, um, you know, and Calvary Chapels and the vineyards that uh, vineyard denomination uh, that sprung out of that has planted over 4,000 churches uh, since then. But this hippie showed up at his door. I mean, people started getting saved. I mean, uh, I heard an interview one time with Greg Voltz, who was the, uh, one of the, he was in Petra for a while, and he was in some secular band, and he's talking about how around a dinner table one night, like the whole band got saved at exactly the same time. Just God's spirit was moving that way. And my prayer is, out of the upheaval of this day, that God would bring another Jesus movement, that God would bring another spiritual awakening. And my prayer is that we'd be a part of that. Let's pray.